Hey gang, for episode 39 this week, we have an Air Force veteran that has traveled the West in search of a master's degree in cowboying. I met our guest through the Executive Link program, and he's here to give us some tasty tips on how to grow the ultimate management team. We demolished several myths about bison management at scale. Please join CK and I in giving Chris Redman a warm welcome to the show. So hi, Chris. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Haven't seen you in a while. Um, so I guess nice let's, to meet you. let's start off, Chris. Uh, you probably don't know CK. I do not. Hi. Where are you located out of? So I'm northeast of Gordon, Nebraska. Okay. Is that? Where so is that? it'd be um, east of Shadron, west of Valentine. Okay. I know where that's at. About, about halfway in between. Yeah. It, yeah. It doesn't get much more sand hills than where you're at, does it? Yes. Yeah. We part just the, the very northern end of the ranch starts getting out of the sand hills into South Dakota, but um, yeah, pretty much the rest of the ranch is all all sand hills. The beautiful country. I I was so surprised the first time I ever visited the sand hills. It's like this is in Nebraska. <laughs> Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that a lot. A lot of people are expecting pivots and cornfields and flat and uh, corn huskers, not, right? Yeah, not any of that. So. Yeah. I'm almost afraid to admit I've never really spent much time in Nebraska, even traveling through it until about the last two years when we've uh, when our executive link meetings have been displaced to South Dakota. And yeah, the Sand Hills, I can see why everybody likes it and everybody wants to go there. That's a man. That's an awful pretty place. So, yes. tell us tell us what your ranch is like and uh, and what your situation's like there. Yeah. So. Um, the ranch is about 80,000 acres, um, and uh, we are a bison, cow-calf, and yearling production operation. Um, we have about uh, 1,600 animals in our breeding herd, and we have uh, about 1,500 animals in a yearling herd. And um, so we, um, you know, basically our operations are to, to grow calves and then put those into yearlings and put those yearlings into meat. Perfect. We'll, we'll get into like some more specifics about grazing and, you know, I kind of want to know what, you know, a year is like in, in the life of a bison rancher. Um, so the, it's the McGinley ranch, correct? Correct. Yes. And it's one of um, 15 ranches that Ted Turner owns. Oh, really? Uh, yep. Nice. And, so Ted, Ted owns, uh, there, there was six still kind of is, but they combined two ranches to, um, to one this year. So there's five ranches in Nebraska, two in South Dakota, one in Kansas, uh, three in New Mexico and three in Montana. And what? all those ranches, um, uh, total up to just under 2 million acres of private land. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I know. That's what's exciting. <laughs> that's exciting. That's a lot and, of work. <laughs> and then all the bison total up to just about 45,000 bison total. Yeah. Wow. I can imagine that scale. I, yeah. It's big. The one in Kansas is only about 10 miles straight South of me. And you know, the managers, I know them really well. They're, they're fantastic people. And, yeah, I, I'll stick with cows. So <laughs> let, let's go to you, Chris. Let's let's talk about your story. Um, 
where'd you come from and how'd you get where you're at and what was uh what was the journey like yeah so it's it is a long story and i've had quite a journey uh, i grew up in eastern washington state in the palouse which is kind of like the sand hills only all farm ground and really good soil um, i grew up there i grew up with a love of agriculture and when I graduated high school, I joined the Air Force. I spent four years as an F-16 jet mechanic. And I got to travel the world and see lots of things. And uh, during that time, I, being a country boy, I had gotten kind of tired of living in dorm rooms on base. And so I went to looking for a different situation. And I was able to... Uh, find a rancher that would take me in. And um, so I, I worked for him during the day, lived in his sheep camp, a uh, little sheep wagon. And, uh, and then I'd work swing shift um, for the air force at night. Okay. Sheep and, wagon. Those are like the teardrop trailers, right? They're like very small, aren't they? They are. Yes. Like what's the square footage? Do you know? Oh, like maybe a hundred. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> they're pretty small. It's just basically a bed, just a uh, bed, and and a stove, uh, a wood stove that you cook on. Yeah, and uh, and a few drawers, and that's about it. No air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, open the window. Air conditioning right? by opening the door. <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of roughing it a little bit. Yeah, you know, and it was great. Uh, you know, the the guy, it was in Morgan, Utah. Uh, the guy was super cool, taught me a bunch, and, and I just fell in love with ranching at that point. And uh, so, you know, I, I finished my service in the Air Force, and then I went to get a bachelor's degree um, with the GI Bill. And so I ended up with a bachelor's degree from the University of Idaho in range and livestock management. That was uh, 2004, and uh, so I got done with that, and I went and cowboyed for about a year on the Matador Ranch in Montana, near Dillon, Montana, pretty big outfit, and um, and then from there, I just kind of wanted to try to do my own thing for a while, and so I went back and worked for the Air Force um, as a civilian, and uh, that didn't last <laughs> real long. <laughs> uh, I was not born to be in that kind of situation. And so um, I ended up, me and my family moved to Ruby Valley, Nevada. And I told my wife at that point, I want to earn a master's degree in cowboying. And so that's what I set out to do. And so for the next, um, what was it? Uh, so that would have been... 08 to about um, 12, I just worked on big, big ranches, um, cow camps, all sorts of different fun stuff, and, and really learned how to be a good cowboy. And, and I loved it. Family loved it. It was, it was good. And then uh, my boss, uh, I was working at Treetop Ranches in Eastern Oregon, and my boss talked me into applying for the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. And so I ended up getting accepted into there in 2012 and moved my family in July from Eastern Oregon to South Texas. Um, and uh, 
So despite the change, right? (laughs) Kingsville's a lovely place. I was going to die. Did you melt? I I feel like every time I'm in Texas, I melt. Yeah, and and, uh, even added bonus to that is we really wanted to stay out of debt. And, you know, the school is paid for, but not a lot of of living expenses. And so we decided to purchase a used fifth-wheel trailer. And, and we lived in a fifth wheel trailer down there for two years um, with our family of three. And then we added a fourth one while we were down there. So um, three kids that is. So um, yeah, anyway, it was pretty interesting time, but the, the Institute was uh, a great learning experience for me. Um, It was a great program and uh, I still, I mean, the skills that I learned there were, were invaluable and I still, you know, continue to build on those skills every day. Um, so I graduated there in 2014, um, spent about six months as assistant manager at Roaring Springs Ranch um, in Eastern Oregon, and then um, got a position as a ranch manager with Turner's um, on the McMurtry Ranch um, in October, 2014. And, uh, so I did that for three years. Um, and then my, we found out my youngest son at the time had, um, autism and we lived about 50 miles from the nearest town and there was not a lot of resources for him there. And so we were able to move into the comp into a different role in the company, um, recruiting and training. Um, so I got to learn how to do HR work. And um, so it was quite a change from ranch manager to HR, but it, it was a really good experience. And I, and I learned a bunch and was able to help the company in a lot of ways by having that previous experience. And then we just had to get back to the ranch about a year ago. We moved up here to the McGinley Ranch. So been here about, I guess, a year and a half now. So where's That's the McMurtry? Where's the McMurtry uh, Ranch? It, it would be south of Nenzel, so it would be uh, about 70 miles southeast of where I'm at. So it's closer to Valentine and then south. And at the time, it was the most remote ranch in Nebraska. Must be uh... – I don't know if that'd be a curse or a blessing. I mean, sometimes it's kind of nice to be be all the way at the end of the road. You just knew that anywhere you went, you were going to be at least, you're going to be in the car at least an hour and a half one way, just no matter what. Well, you know, sometimes 20 or 30 minutes is bad enough, but an hour and a half, yeah, that'd be a little bit rough. You know, you'd have to make sure all the women got their shopping mall trips in and you got your Starbucks and McDonald's while you were there. Yeah. Yep, for sure. So, so that was that was an hour and a half just to Valentine, which there's a McDonald's. That's about all this there. <laughs> I remember going through it. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot. Yeah. So I'm I'm really interested in in talking about people management and what what are you looking for in a new hire for, uh, I think you guys probably call it technician, like an entry level technician, but some of the rest of us might call it a herdsman now. Um, and how do you build and maintain good teams? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. And it's something that I have 
spent a lot of time on. And, and I'm just going to preface with all this that we live in a lot different world than we did um, even 20 years ago. 20 years ago, if you wanted a ranch hand, you put out an ad in Western Livestock Journal and you had probably 30 people that were calling it. Um, and, and it's just not that way anymore. And very, very few people out there have ranch experience. And so when I talk about recruiting candidates for a job, you know, in, in our company, it has changed from looking for somebody with a ranch skill set to uh, almost a complete 180 and hiring for character and training for skill. And, and that's a really hard thing to do. Um, you know, a lot of people don't either have the time or want to take the time to uh, train people um, to do ranch work. And so getting that mindset of hiring for character is, is tough, but, but really when you look at it, there is so much value in having somebody with the character that you need and, and just taking the time to train them for skill. And actually, if you have the person with the right character, the training time is very minimal because they're going to go out and learn most of it on their own. So, you know, that, that really, you know, looking for that person is, is difficult. Uh, I spent a lot of time in our company telling our story and building our brand so that people knew who we are and, uh, and we're excited about the work that we're doing. And I think that's really the, the first thing that you have to do is you have to have a story to tell and, and something that excites people to come work for you. Um, whatever it is, and everybody's got their unique piece that they, that they can um, showcase and highlight. And so, you know, really looking at yourself, your operation, and what is that unique piece um, and then, and then you start advertising different places. You know, I spent a lot of time getting to know different people at university level, which is great. Um, and, and it helps get, you know, internships and sometimes you can get a recent graduate from that. But I think the real, um, good candidates have come from places like Ranching for Profit, um, the Stockman Grass Farmer, uh, the National Bison Association, different places like that to really get um, the ad out there. Um, and, and then the biggest key to all that is a great interview process. And that is something that we have worked at for the last three years extensively to try to get a really good interview process that, um, that captures as much as you can from a candidate. And, and I think the, the most important piece that is often overlooked in an interview process is the reference interview. So calling and interviewing references. And the key to that is having, uh, picking references, you picking the references for the candidate. Uh, that is, uh, a lot of times they're going to hand you a list of here's my references. Um, and they're already cherry picked by them. So if you can go into their job experience um, and and ask for different references, I think sometimes that really pulls out some, some things. What so, are some questions that you yeah. ask? The references? 
Uh, the questions. So yeah. I asked um, what context they worked with the employee, and and then I asked them um, to rate that employee's um, performance on a scale of one to ten, mm-hmm. or you know if it's a coworker, you know whatever, um, you know to rate that performance of them and that job on a scale of one to ten, and I asked them you know what were their strengths uh, during that job and. Uh, you know, what, what was their biggest area of improvement back then? And I think when you say back then, it really takes the pressure off, you know, of uh, them not wanting to make the employee look Oh, bad. like, yeah, like that they're different now. Like they've improved. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, those are the, those are the questions and then anything else that they'd like to share. Uh, but it's really super simple, but it's highly effective. I think then, that it's important yes, that you got to kind of mine those references and and really drill down and and maybe find the one one of the ones they don't necessarily want you to talk to and see what they have to say. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'll say this: um, it, it, this isn't a flag by any means, but it, it can be like a checkered flag, if you will. If um, if you get this, if you get a candidate that gives you their current boss for reference. Um, I think that's huge. And, and I will ask them, um, yeah. most, of the time, most of the time they say no, um, because they're looking, you know, they don't want them to know they're no. looking. Yep. Right. Yep. But, uh, and I, I don't hold that against a person by any means. Right. But if, if they let their boss know and they're transparent with their boss and their boss knows they're looking, um, I think that that's, um, really cool. And I think that's a huge, um, huge bonus to that person. Yeah, I wouldn't even think of that, but that is so true. Well, it tells you one thing right up front that, you know, there's there's already – they have an existing good relationship and there's good communication and they're parting on good terms. Yep. You know, so those those are already some pretty strong pluses. I, I want to pause for a minute here and, you know, before we get, you know, kind of in the middle of this interview process, there's resumes being floating around. And, man, it's <laughs> – it, it's so. Yeah. What, are, what are some tips for reading through the bullshit and, and seeing what's really there in a resume? Do you I cringe hate, when you see grammar errors? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I, I really do. And I hate right. resumes. Um, uh, in fact, so I, I, uh, I got to know a guy out of Montana this year um, that he was posting a job on LinkedIn and it just, the, the job description really, spoke to me, you know, I just like, wow, this, this is really cool. It was a very disruptive type of job posting, but, but what he, he asked for, and I actually did this in my last um, hiring process for a person on this ranch is I, he said, I don't want a resume. You can send a resume, but I'm not going to read it. Um, What I want is a compelling cover letter that gives me your life mission, vision, and values and a SWOT analysis as pertaining to this job or this role. And, and I asked for that. And instead of getting like 30 or 40 resumes that were junk or people that really didn't care that they're just mass sending them out, I got, I think like six applicants. And out of those six, I had three that actually did the, the cover letter. The other three, I was nice and I emailed them back. And I asked them to reread the instructions and provide me with the 
required or requested content, and I never heard back from those three. But but I had three excellent candidates that were super hard to choose between. I imagine so, that made it pretty simple. You you weeded out a lot of the tire kickers and drive bys and and the guys that weren't gonna weren't gonna answer yes. the phone when you called them back anyway. Yes, and the, mom, the ones who had their mom write their resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Or 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 a college friend or something, right? Yeah. So, and I think it's really difficult to read resumes because people are not very honest in resumes a lot of times, but you know, if, if you're going to look through a resume, I think just really a lot of people are looking for how quickly did someone move jobs and all that. But to me, that really doesn't matter because everybody knows that sometimes it's really hard to find a good fit. You know, it's hard for a manager to find a good employee and vice versa. And so I don't necessarily hold job changes against a person. Um, but what I do look for is what has this person accomplished? Um, not duties and responsibilities, but you know, what are the compelling things that this person has done? And so, you know, you can look at education, um, a little bit. I could care less about GPA. Um, but just, you know, what did they do and did they finish? Um, and, uh, and what are they, what have they been doing with their life since they graduated? I think that's another key piece, you know, are they, you know, increasing responsibility? I, I think that's a really good thing to look at with a resume. How about any tips for writing one or uh, what, uh, if somebody is listening to this podcast that's wanting to come and look at, uh, you know, say Turner for a job, what are some tips for writing a resume? You know, I think one of the best things that I ever did is, um, go through a resume building company. Um, I know that kind of goes back to like having your mom write it, but actually, um, it's a great investment. I think it cost me a hundred dollars at the time. Um, they they kind of do counseling though. It's like almost like a consultation. It really is like, this is how you're structuring up to sell yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I, I think a good, um, good resume building company and, and plus like they have some really good templates out there that can make your resume look nice. I'm still, maybe I'm old fashioned. I'm still not a fan of pictures on a resume. Um, that's just me. And I, and I've actually read some articles, you know, corporate type articles. And most people say that if they see a picture on a resume, they're going to put it in the trash. <laughs> um, so I've stayed away from that for sure. Um, I think, so the way that I set mine up that I really like is at the very top, there's three short columns um, that kind of highlight that I have a summary statement that's, you know, I don't know, three or four sentences long. And then I have my education and I have um, training attended right up front. And I think those are important keys to just try to highlight those things because it shows you know, what, where your background is, it tells you who you are as a person. And I think, so some people write a, like, this is what I want to do with my life. But I think that a person should approach it differently. And this is who I am. And this this is what I bring to the table. Um, Because maybe you say you want to be a ranch technician, but 
maybe not. Maybe you just would love to have a ranch job to learn something and that's okay too. But I think just telling what you bring to the table and about your character um, is a huge deal in that front piece. And it, it like super quick, um, you know, you can get into more detail on your cover letter for sure, but it just something to grab someone's eye and say, oh, okay, this is what this person is going to offer me right up front. And then the, the training that you've done, I think is huge because it shows you that shows the employer that, Hey, this person is working on continuing education. They want to improve their craft. You know, they're really trying to be the best they can be. Okay. So you're advertising for a position and I sent you what you need. And now we've made it past the interview process and you're down to, you know, down to three. So how are you trying, how are you choosing between applicants to try to, to try to guess what this round peg is for your round (laughs) hole? So uh, I'm going to add one more piece in the interview process. We have started doing uh, panel interviews where we have three to four ranch managers that are on the phone at the same time for the interview. And I have found that extremely helpful Sometimes it's really hard for people to do that because they don't want someone else's opinion. But I think getting peers' opinions on a candidate is a huge deal. And and then this may sound bad, but it um, induces stress to the candidate. Um, you know, all of a sudden there's four or five people on the phone, and um, and it can be a little bit stressful. Um, knowing that you have to respond to those, um, those people that way. But that's the job too, though, right? It it is. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing and and it's fun to see how people react. And then, you know, we also ask a lot of character based and, and their behavioral type interview questions. So we're asking them to describe a time where they did something really well and a time where they messed it up. And one of the big things that you can pick out is when people are unwilling to say, well, I can't think of a time where I did this poorly or whatever, that's a huge red flag. And so, you know, I really um, pay attention to that and, and look, look out for that. But we, we ask that, so we come up with, you know, core competencies for that position. And then we ask those questions, super simple questions around those core competencies. So for an example, um, let's, let's say it's stockmanship, you know, tell us, um, you know, your experience, um, in good stockmanship and tell us about a time where you used good stockmanship and it, um, it worked really well. And then they explain that. And then, um, and then we ask them, okay, tell us about a big wreck that you had, um, when you weren't using good stockmanship and, and, you know, what'd you learn from it? So, those are really good questions that help pull out character out of skills too. Those are like almost some questions we ask on the podcast. I'm like trying to think how I would answer those. Yes. Like, what was your biggest wreck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it's good because it shows humility and, yes. and it shows, you know, that someone's able to learn from a mistake and, you know, we all are going to make mistakes and, and if we're not making mistakes, I, we're not trying hard enough. And so, you know, just being able to 
learn from those mistakes and hopefully not make those, those same mistakes again is mm-hmm. really what we're after from learning from people. So yes, um, that those are a couple of things that I just wanted to say before uh, I dove into that. So, so I have, you know, usually three to four other ranch managers that are helping me to decide which, you know, how to narrow those candidates down. Um, but when I get down to the, the last three, um, so, you know, we're rating those uh, candidates on every step. We do a, um, an initial phone screen, then we do the interview, um, and, and then, you know, at that point, we're going to rate those. And so the highest rated person will invite out for an on-site interview. And I think that, especially in ranching, uh, but in a lot of other sectors, an on-site interview is absolutely critical. And a lot of people don't want to pay for the travel, but, um, you know, we pay for all the travel. And I think I'll never forget, this has been some time ago, but I, I went to interview at Treetop Ranches. And I was, you know, pretty broke, cowboy, had a family, living in cow camps. And I drove out there to interview um, with this person. And all he did was fill my tank up with diesel, but, and, and they had, they had some kind of a family reunion deal and they had some leftover food and they fed us, you know, but I just felt like, man, this person is going to take care of um, his employees. And he did, you know, but it was just as simple as filling me up with diesel. Um, and, and that was a huge deal for me that I didn't have to pay for that. So, you know, I think it goes a long ways when you are willing to pay for that travel um, for that person to come out there. So, um, and so, you know, during that interview process, there's a, um, that onsite, I'm going to introduce them to the rest of the team. I'm going to let them spend some alone time with other team members because I want their input as well. And, um, and so my goal is to get at least two of those people out for on-sites, the top two. And, uh, um, you know, a, there's a chance one of them may back out. And so you've got that third one, um, hopefully, that, you know, can be a backup plan. But, um, you know, you're really after that top candidate. And, you know, the, the important thing, I think, to remember is, you know, what am I – trying to hire and you know for for us we're really looking for a players we want people that are driven that want to go somewhere that are passionate about what we're doing that can fall in line with our mission and so we've got to be able to you know draw those people out and uh and so when we have someone out for a on-site interview we're really looking for those characteristics um and that they're going to mesh well with the team And, and i trust my team to point pick out things that I might miss. You got any good uh, on-site interview crash landing stories? <laughs> yeah, so I do. And and I had to check myself on this because like it really took me back. I thought, well, I'm, I'm probably overreacting here, but um, I had someone come out. It was a little bit more of an informal um, interview. Uh, the, the person was just coming out. They're fairly local, came out to kind of take a look. Um, but, you know, we really hadn't gone through the inter- whole interview process yet. But um, they came out and, uh, you know, I was showing them around and they were riding with me. And, and we must have gone through 10 gates 
and they never once got out to open a gate. And, and so I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm missing something, you know? And so I asked a couple of my peers, like, would this bother you? Like, yeah, what do you, no, don't hire that person, you know? And but just for our listeners, was, you should have seen Brian and I's faces because we did ugly cringe face because we're like, yes, that's awful. Like that that's yeah, rule so, number one. If you're sitting on the right side, yeah. yes. Get the yes. damn gate. <laughs> so anyway, that was a that was a pretty uh pretty blank one. Um But I'm then again, you know, like somebody raised in the city that's never been around farming and ranching. I've had those moments where I didn't, when I saw the gate and how you're supposed to close it with like those cheeto, cheater bars and stuff. And I'm like, I just don't want to embarrass myself. But if it's like a latch. Well, these are thing, iron swing gates. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so. not those wooden ones that you have to like lay on the ground <laughs> no. and do the cheater no. bar to get the wire. to I go. Yeah. Pretty, pretty easy. Yeah, but I mean, regardless, this person was um, a manager on a ranch. Okay. A they should have been handy enough to know how to close and open anyway. a gate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd think anyway, but that was probably the biggest one. So. Yeah. That case is just like, Guy's probably just being lazy. He's like, it's not my ranch. I don't have to get out and open a gate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't work here yet. Then, I'm not opening right? that gate. Doesn't want the job. You know. yeah. He must not have wanted the job that bad. No, yeah. I don't think so. So, well, I guess after you know, after the on-site interview, they're probably either hired or not. Um, so, what would uh, what would a typical first year look like for a new hire? Like from an HR standpoint, like what are you looking for from a new hire for the first yeah, year? So um, this is something that we spent a lot of time on as well in our company building. And, and, and I think a good onboarding program is critical. Cool. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of statistics out there that say, if you don't do a good job onboarding an employee that, they're probably going to be checked out in the first nine days and you're lucky to keep them six months. Um, and so, you know, we've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out and I don't know that we have it great yet, but we do have a good system to where, you know, we get that person in on day one, you know, we sit them down with a job description. We really try to minimize the paperwork. You know, we, there is, there are things that we have to do, but, we've gotten to where most of that's electronic and people can actually do it ahead of time if they want to. And so that makes it handy um, and pretty simple. And then, and then take them for a tour out on the ranch. Um, just, you know, really make that first day enjoyable. Um, and then the other thing that we've done on the first day is done our ATV safety training. So we have kind of a protocol that we do there and just get that done and out of the way. You know, I give them their, their pickup that's all nice and clean that, you know, I've made sure is in really good shape. Um, they, you know, if they have a computer or a workstation that that's clean and everything's, you know, squared away for that workstation, you know, prior to that, making sure if you do provide a house that that's really clean and, and ready to go. You know, one of the things that we haven't done yet that I would like to get to the point where we do is have kind of like a welcome package for them when they arrive into the house. Maybe it's a, you know, a warm batch of cookies, you know, maybe it's a, um, some swag from the ranch, um, you know, just something like that, a nice, warm, welcome, glad you're here um, package in their house. And, 
um, you know, and then making sure that everything's, you know, really squared away at the house. And then, you know, the, you know, other parts of that, um, you know, at first, you know, then, then take your first week. Okay. You know, what should this first week look like? You know, want to give them some training and then give them a chance to, you know, give them some jobs that they, that are really super simple, but they can go and get to know the ranch with, you know, um, get them into different pastures and that kind of stuff. Um, but we, we created, we call it the bison worker training program, um, which we're actually renaming the ranch technician training program. Um, but, uh, it basically is designed to take a person from day one and, and take them into, um, their, through their first year is really getting their skill set built up, um, to where, you know, we sign them off on all these different tasks to where we feel like they're an actual contributing member to the team that, you know, they are a seasoned ranch hand at that point, if you will, that they've seen hopefully about everything and they've learned how to do everything. And so, you know, a year in they're, they're a functioning employee and they're adding value to the team. Um, that's really our goal. And so we, we line that out and, and it can get done a lot quicker than a year, but we give it a year just in case, just depends what time of year they start so that they can go through the whole cycle and calendar of events um, and, uh, so that, um, that's one of the pieces. And then we take, um, another approach from there. If a person wants to develop into, a, um, a ranch manager one day that there's a pathway for them to do that. And it's divided into like four different, um, certifications, if you will, that kind of progresses that person from their skill set all the way on up to supervisory and, um, uh, and different types of roles, getting them ready to be budgetary, financial, ready to be a manager. Would you rather hire a manager or grow one and promote from within? We would rather grow one and promote from within, um, but we have not done a good job at that. And, you know, this is pretty recent, you know, building this program. And it's, you know, I mean, it's a succession plan. And, and when you have people that work for your company, they want to grow. I mean, not everybody does. Some people just want to stay as a ranch hand and that's great. But the people that want to grow, that are excited about the company and believe in our mission and what a, what a great asset that would be to be able to promote that person into being a manager later. I, I always think it's better to try to grow your own than to try to, you know, because what you're looking for, the person you're looking for to run your ranch or or to be a herdsman or to just go out and pick up polywire, that person ready-made does not exist. If they do, they've already got a job. Right. You have to grow your own in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah we've, we've gotten really blessed to hire some great managers and, um, and, it's, and it's worked, um, but we, you know, we would really like to be able to grow our own and, uh, and develop them. And I I mean, it gives someone something to look forward to and it, um, and then it gives the company, you know, an investment in that person. So. So what, what is a year like on a bison ranch? So I'll start off, you know, in the beginning of the year, we're generally going to, um, work our, our core herd, which is our breeding herd, um, in 
late January to mid-February, sometime in there. And so at that point, we're pregnant checking our cows. Um, we're um, calling anything that's open, and uh, we are weaning our calves. We like to do it. You know, some of the ranches do it in the fall, but um, we prefer to do it later in the spring because we um, – Th those calves are more mature and and they just wean a lot better later in the spring and i mean they're almost already weaned anyway so it makes it really super easy and less stressful to to wean them and so you know at that point we um we basically are creating an extra herd we have our flex herd which is our newly weaned calves all of our cold cows and any kind of coal bowls that we have. Um, on the McGinley Ranch, we are running all two-year-old bulls, and we trade them out every year. So all those bulls that we put in with the herd will pull out, and then they'll get grass finished over the summer. Um, and so that's been a really great program for us, and we're just barely into it. Um, this is our second year at it, but we really like it so far. Um, so yeah, that, that gets ended somewhere around, you know, the middle of February and, uh, it, you know, we're generally working around 300 animals a day is kind of the speed that we're doing things. Um, you know, we really try to work them well and, and use good stockmanship principles and, and just, and, and do it, do it right and do it well to make it as, uh, stress-free as possible, um, for those animals. So, and, you know, for, for people that haven't been around bison, you know, there's a lot of different things out there, but we really work hard at stockmanship. We have Whit Hibbard come out every year and work with our team on, on all of our ranches. And then, um, you know, we just really practice that with each other, um, throughout the year. And so we work all of our animals on foot in the corrals. Um, we'll bring them up, you know, bring up drafts from clear back on the backside, you know, to, to stage for working for the day. We'll, we'll use ATVs or UTVs for that. But when we're bringing up animals into the uh, working facility, we do that all on foot and, uh, and it works really, really well for us. So, um, yeah, so that lasts, you know, somewhere around 10 days by the time you get through all the calves and cows and everything. Um, and then once that's done, those bred cows go back out to pasture and, um, then the, the other herd kind of goes off and, and that gets, um, they'll get some cake through the winter. And the only reason that happens is because, um, so bison, um, have a unique characteristic in that their rumen goes through a catabolic state in the wintertime. So they don't need extra feed resources to, to keep going. Uh, but they don't really get that catabolic state until their second winter. What does that mean? Is that like their metabolism is lowered? Yes. They, they, yeah, they don't. Yeah, yeah. They're able to, um, the turnover rate in the rumen slows way down. Uh, metabolism goes up. It's kind of like hibernation, if you will. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's yeah. a good so, way to say that, yeah. Yeah, so they do that. Um, and, you know, we are super passionate about making sure that we don't feed that out of them. I think that cattle used to be a lot more like that, and we fed it out of them. 
um, over the years. But anyway, it's a it's a really cool thing that yeah. um, you keep bison. You know, we try to let bison be bison as much as possible, and we want them to thrive in their natural environment. So we we really push for that. So our bred cows, the only cake they get throughout the year is um, when we're getting ready to work them, we'll get them used to the cake truck just to make it easier to get them into the system. Um, so those bread cows get turned out. Our flex herd gets um, uh, gets cake um, for, you know, a couple months and um, every other day for a couple months. And then, um, then we get green grass start coming in. We're generally getting those flex herd animals on our meadows pretty early, doing some flash grazing on our wet meadows. Um, and then we get to around the first part of May and we start splitting that flex herd up because we're going to have to start shipping animals soon. So our cull cows will go in a group. Um, our bulls that we pulled off will go into a different grass finished group so they don't breed anything. And then we have our yearling herd that continues to graze. Um, and, and what we did this year, so in the past, um, and it's, it's worked well, um, we have grazed those animals, those flexured animals, solely on the meadows all summer long, high intensity, short duration, once or twice a day moves um, from May until August. Um, and that's worked pretty well. Um, but I decided to change some things up last year. And so we started balancing those animals for, we do like a couple weeks on the meadows, high intensity, short duration grazing. And then we put them in small pastures in the uplands, um, for a week or two. And, um, and the reason that we did that is, uh, because of a lot of Fred Provenza's work, um, and just knowing phytochemicals and nutrient densities and those type of things. We wanted those animals to have more variety. A lot of our wet meadows are high, have high amounts of reeds canary grass, um, which isn't that nutritious. And, um, you know, there are some other plants in there, of course, but there is a lot of that. So we wanted to get more variety in their diet. And so we started uh, doing some different grazing techniques there. So, yeah, those yearlings will graze throughout the summer um, on those meadows and uplands, actually all the way until October or November. And then generally speaking, in November, we will work those yearlings again, and the bulls will get put on uh, feed. So they'll, they'll start getting backgrounded uh, with oats and corn. And then they'll go to one of our feeding facilities, um, usually uh, another ranch in Nebraska. So um, on that note, that's kind of another interesting thing that we do is our, our feeding program, we used to send a lot of animals to commercial feedlots. And we were losing a lot of animals to death loss. And so we looked at doing things differently. And our uh, vice president, he had spent some time um, doing some feed trials with bison. And so we started playing with it a little bit, and then we dove into it. But what we do to feed our bison is they're on a free choice ration. So there's bales of alfalfa, bales of meadow hay, and there's free choice corn in bottomless bunks. So they can go eat a little corn, they can go eat some alfalfa and grass, and they self-regulate the rumor. 
and and we give them more pen space. So on average, they're getting about 600 square feet per animal of pen space. And so they're, they're more open um, and they get to eat what they, what makes them healthy. Right. Um, and, you know, cause each diet is individual and they do really, really well. We, we went from, uh, and I, I won't put any numbers out there, but we right. drastically reduced our death loss to less than a half a percent. And then is that, is that different because feedlots that I've been exposed to, they want to be aggressive at the bunk, right? They want to clean up the bunk. So that's, uh-huh. that's the difference, right? And, right. and, and making up for the herd health. Um, yes. And, and the other thing is, you know, uh, they, in a typical feedlot, they get a TMR and it's just, right. it's, open, it's just, open, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many of us like to eat? It's the same milk? boring yeah. ration, right? Yeah. It's never the step up one. Maybe, maybe I yeah. want a little bit more honey today, you know? Um, I like green sure. M&Ms, but every once in a while I want a red one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it just, uh, it gives them the opportunity to, to select their diet and, and that helps each individual grow better and stay healthier. That's so interesting. I had no idea. So, yeah, so anyway, they, they'll go through that feeding process. We actually, each ranch retains ownership on those animals until they get slaughtered. All of our grain-finished animals go to brush meat processors and get marketed through Rocky Mountain Natural Meats as Great Range Bison. So yeah. if you ever go to the store and see Great Range Bison, we I mean, supply about 40% of that yeah. product. Um, we supply 40% of the animals that make that product. Um, and then, yeah, so the, the main herd has had their, they, they have their calves somewhere starting about, um, mid April, um, until about mid July, but the bulk of them are mid May to mid June, you know, about a 30 day calving window. And then, um, you know, the rest of them, there's, you know, some of them that are, you know, in that 60, 60 days or so, but most of them are in the 30 day window. And, and we, you can leave bulls in year round and they'll just rut and you don't have to worry about, you know, animals getting bred at odd times. I was going to ask if you left your bulls out all year, or if you did, if you did seasonal breeding and how you managed to tight, how you managed to get a tight breeding window or a calving window with that. But it sounds like uh, bison are a lot better than bovine at, at regulating seasonal fertility to match uh, available forage quality. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, I, I think that that could have some, I mean, bison are wild animals for one, but I think that could have some um, relationship to feed. Genetics Uh, too. (laughs) Yeah. Genetics, but like, you know, part of that catabolic state, you know, those animals are, are on a, declining plane of nutrition right you know, so i think there's just a lot of value into nature's system yeah um, regulating those animals and and then they you know I, I think evolution definitely plays a role in what you know beef cattle have done over the last you know century or two um and uh i i, I would i would almost bet that over time um that people that are feeding their bison through the winter and, you know, giving them high nutrition through the winter. Um, I would almost bet that they'll see reproductive changes in those animals. Yeah. That that's interesting. 
That's interesting. I, Just a Chris Redman philosophy there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you can you train docility into bison, or is that is that a myth? Like they're always going to be wild, is what I've heard. You you can to a point, but yeah. they are wild animals. And, you know, the thing about them is they have horns and they know how to use them. Mm-hmm. And, and they might just be playing. Oh, um, yeah. And, like, they get kind of frisky and, and they could just play with you and rip your guts wide open. Right. You know? When you said we work them on foot, I was like, okay. I'm not, I'm not interviewing for this job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you definitely got to be able to read animals and they're oh, absolutely. I mean, so like that's you, why it's you so gotta jump on the fence. You know? yeah. I mean, I just was yeah. wondering if that was a myth. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, we, you can with good stockmanship and building trust, you can get those animals to where they are a lot more quiet and calm, but they are still bison. I work horned cattle on foot, but, you know, that's horned cattle. We're not talking about <laughs> mostly wild bison. Right. And right. I've even thought about, you know, the thought's occurred to me more than once. Hey, dummy, maybe, like, wearing some body armor wouldn't be a horrible idea because <laughs> there are some of these girls that have, like, three foot of spear on each side of their oh, head. Yeah. 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 That wouldn't just hurt. It would hurt a lot until the ambulance got there. Yeah. Yeah, you know the. I mean, we do our, our our pens are a little bit taller and a little bit wider just to give those animals a little bit more room. Um, but you know, if things go south up by the chute, you can guarantee that you did a bad job handling those animals way back early in the morning. It all starts first thing in the morning, and then it you know it it can build or you know you can de-escalate it. It just depending on how you're working with those animals. Well, it, it's kind of like that with cattle, too. You know, if you have a rough morning gathering out of the pasture and you got 16 cowboys out there hooping and hollering and nine dogs and a cake wagon and everybody's making noise and you you have a rough sort and the cattle are getting agitated and you're getting in the middle of the day and it's hot and your helpers are tired. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. It, by the time you start even running one animal through the chute, you know, that cumulative stress of, of poor stockmanship and poor handling is built up, yeah. not just in your crew, but in the in the animals i'm the kind of guy that you know i like to tell the trucks to be there an hour after i plan to already have everything in the corrals settled sure. and quiet like even on work days i try to get everything you know in, into at least a 20 acre trap the night before so it's a nice quick gather in and everything goes quiet and smooth and and we don't start charging those animals with a lot of stress and i imagine it's easier to do with bison is they probably respond a lot differently than cattle. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the stockmanship differences between bison and cattle? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of similarities um, between bison and cattle when, when thinking about stockmanship. The biggest difference is their flight zone. Um, they are so, so sensitive. And um, you just have – I mean, I am not good at it. I'm just going to say that out front. Um I am um, not a great stockman with bison. Um, I've learned a lot and I've gotten a lot better. Um, the guy that has been here on the ranch for 10 years, he loves stockmanship and he has made it his life's mission to be a good stockman. He is great um, about, you know, with, with the animals and he's done a great job teaching 
um, me, but that, you know, being patient, being slow and, and giving them plenty of room to make a decision. Um, I think, you know, those are the big differences and it's not really that different. It's just, you have to be a lot more sensitive and when things do go south, with bison, they really go south. <laughs> They're a little handier than a cow. They can they can move a little bit quicker and turn a little quicker. Yes, yeah, and they they have a lot of endurance. And if you get one taken off, I mean, more more times than not, it's just better to let them go and um, and just uh, they'll stop when they feel like it. Yeah, I mean, you can you can get them to turn, but. Um, Anyway, it, it's it can be pretty dicey trying to do that. So, can we talk a little bit about how do we set up a team for success? Like on a big work day, like when you guys are working bison or shipping bison, and you've got you know some new people on the crew. How do you set that up for success? Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, great question because I mean it's always going to be um, a need. You know, I, I think one of the biggest things that a person can do is take the pressure off yourself and off that person and don't expect anything out of that person. Um, you know, really try to make it a learning environment for them. So have an extra person there to help so you're not shorthanded um, and you're not expecting that person to really come out there and, and contribute a lot, that they can kind of make the rounds and, and shadow people through the day and get to know different places and what people are doing and, and how it all flows. And um, I think that's probably the, the biggest um, key for success. And, and maybe it's do that for, you know, the whole week, you know, or whatever to, so they can really get a feel for, you know, what needs to be done and how you do business instead of them, you know, being in the wrong place and getting their butt chewed and, um, you know, feeling inadequate and feeling lost you know, you take that pressure off and they're just there to learn. Um, and we, we always start our every, and it's a little bit of a requirement, but it's not a bad, bad thing. Um, but we start every day of works with a safety briefing. Um, and, and that's usually, I, I don't do that myself. I assign that to another employee to do that. I think that's important as well for them to be able to express, you know, what they're seeing and, and then they bring up a different point, you know, like maybe one day it's animal stress, um, you know, the signs of animals being stressed. Uh, maybe a, another day is complacency on the crew, you know, um, getting tired or, or complacent. Anyway, they bring up different safety topics. And, and then we talk about any near misses from the previous day, if there were any, anything we can do to mitigate that. And I think that's just good conversation and, and it uh, kind of loosens things up a little bit. It gets people thinking about, you know, being safe. And then the other thing that we do is we start off the day with prayer. And I think that's a huge deal too. And, you know, I don't definitely don't force that on anybody. It's uh, um, I put it out front. Hey, you know, we've decided as a crew, as a team, that this is what we want to do. We want to say a prayer before we work animals. If you're not comfortable with that, you know, feel free to step outside um, and so I, I leave that, um, extremely open to, you know, whoever wants to join in with that. 
I was listening to you tell that story, and I was just sitting here thinking, tell me your former Air Force without telling me your former Air Force when you said that you had a safety brief every morning, but you delegated that task to somebody else. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I I love the concept of a safety brief. Personally, you know, I picked that up when I was in the Navy. You know, every morning starts with a brief. This is what we're doing. This is what everybody's doing. This is where we're going. And... I've tried to carry that culture forward, you know, in the things that I do in the ranch and in the community. Like, uh, you know, a lot of, we do a lot of prescribed burning down here and I've tried to bring that in with prescribed burning and, you know, we've started doing it when we're working cattle, you know, and for just branded calves, get everything in, get all the guys like, okay, this is what we're doing. You guys on these gates, you're on horses. You guys go make sure the beer's still cold. We'll get it done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're a little we're we're not big corporate, you know. There's guys around here drink beer at ten o'clock in the morning working cows. I'm not one of them. But you know, just just having that safety brief and everybody being on the same page. Don't assume that because we've done this for the last ten years every spring that everybody magically knows what everybody's going to be doing. Yeah. You know, even if it's just even if it's just taking a minute or two to line out roles. Just to yeah. start with. And that's, so that's what I want to add is I've been to a ton of brandings where we're free labor, right? Or weanings or just like they just know that we're always there for the beer too. And so what I've seen the most successful is those people who line them out say, this is what I need. To, this is the goal of today. We set the agenda. I'm sorry. I sound like a total tech salesperson. <laughs> we, we set like the tone for the day, what needs to be done. And then I've had people who just – just start doing things and then want everyone else to read their mind. And I'm like, that's, that's why you had a wreck of a day. Yeah. And Um, and I think the other thing that I do that is um, really set our team up for success is so each person, um, at least currently the way that we operate, each person has uh, animal stewardship. So one person's in charge of our breeding herd, the other one's in charge of our flex herd, and then another one's in in charge of our finishing herd and kind of oddball animals. So whenever we work or ship animals, the person that's in charge of that herd is coordinating that event. Um, they're, they're putting people where they need to be, you know, they're making assignments and, you know, generally we're all going to be in the same places. It's not like it changes much, but if anybody new is there or anybody helping that they'll make those assignments and, and, and they're the boss. And so, you know, I'm just there to help. That's my job there to help. And so I think that also sets, um, sets things up for success as well. You're kind of there to just enable them and make sure that they have the tools for success so they can accomplish their job. Yep. And if things aren't going right, um, you know, I need to be able to step back and, you know, see the bigger picture and what's going on. And so, you know, I've got to be able to, um, be that leader there that's doing that. Uh, but I, you know, my job isn't to uh, manage the people. My job is to develop my team into being leaders themselves. Train your own replacement, right? Right. Absolutely. Well, it's a master delegation, actually. Like if you're <laughs> if you're the head honcho, that's your job. Is you are you're a master delegator. That should be so I, every CEO's <laughs> role. <laughs> I, I love what Jocko Wilmick says. He says, if you want to be in charge of everything, be in charge of nothing. Jocko's a wise man. I mean, he is. 
maybe one of these days we'll uh, we'll get big enough we can attract a name to be on here like Jocko to talk talk to us about real leadership from the trenches. I want to hear uh, I want to hear some more about your bison. Uh, sorry about how you regeneratively manage and graze the bison. I mean, you, we kind of skipped through a lot of that when you're going through your year in a life of a bison ranch manager. Uh, but you did talk about doing some flash grazing and then you know doing some daily moves, moving twice a day, spending time in the meadows, and then going up to the highlands. So how are you doing that? Because, uh, I mean, we all know. I mean, everybody knows, and it's accepted as fact, that bison won't stay in behind polywire. <laughs> yeah, um, that is a myth. Um, and we do use a lot of polywire. And I'm not going to say, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's always perfect. And I'm sure that there's been plenty of people um, that are listening to this podcast that uh, have had lots of polywire wrecks with cattle as well. Or sheep. Uh, so, <laughs> or sheep, right? yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, you know, we, there, there's a, there's a lot of, um, speculation about what can be done with bison and whatnot. And, and we're still figuring a lot of that out. I think, um, there, you know, we started going down a road where we thought maybe we could get cattle as tight or bison as tight as cattle, but, um, bison aren't meant to be that tight. And they do need some more room, but we uh, we've gotten um, fairly good results um, having bison at you know forty to seventy thousand pounds per acre, um, which is pretty good. And behind and that's behind a single strand polywire, um, and that was you know twelve twelve hour move, twenty four hour move. You know we're probably somewhere averaging somewhere around the thirty thousand pounds per acre when we're on the meadows. Um, let's stop for a second that, and let's like. Yeah. What does thirty to seventy thousand pounds an acre stock density of bison look like? Like, how many acres? How many animals? And how often were you moving them? Because so 50, I, mean, I, I know the math, and it's easy for me yeah. to understand that, but not not everybody right. gets that. So fifty thousand pounds per acre would be like twelve hundred um, yearling bison, which are weighing probably somewhere around the seven hundred pound range on seven and a half acres. Um. So that, um, Hey, not a lot of cattle producers even do that though. Let's, let's be real. (laughs) Sorry, you guys are not doing that yet, but I'm just saying. And so those animals were actually on about three acres, three to three and a half acres on their own. They, you know, they had just grouped up to that for most of that grazing period of 12 hours. Um, but generally speaking, you know, like our, what we're really shooting for on a day-to-day basis, that's what we've done what we found really works probably the best for the animals. It's not quite as, you know, we would like to be a little bit tighter than we are, but we're about 30 acres with 1500 animals. Um, and you know, those are yearling animals. So, you know, it, um, it's quite a bit less than 50,000 pounds per acre, but those are, you know, one to two day moves. Um, and, and really that's, that ends up being pretty good. The animals are really comfortable with that. Um, and yeah, you can tighten them up to 20. Um, and, and that seems to work. Okay. You get much under 20 acres and, and they just don't, they're not as comfortable and they're not doing as well. Um, and you know, yeah, you have some breakouts, but for the most part, I mean, those animals stay in really, really well. Um, when we're doing our bulls, that's a different story. (laughs) They're, 
they're a little more pushy and um, a little less content usually. And so even if they have a lot of room, they like to push on the fences. And so we found that we actually have the best results with at least a two wire poly fence for them. But uh, my employee this year that I just hired, he's been um, doing a lot of work with these bulls and our bull herd is pretty small right now. We've got about three, let's see, uh, 200 head left. And, um, and he's been getting them down to like an acre and a half to two acres. Um, and, and they've been doing really well on that. So. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's impressive stuff. What kind of, what kind of changes have you seen in the land since you've done that? And, uh, like, what are your rest periods like? I guess that's really the important <clears throat> one is, um, and maybe tell us how much rain you get. Yeah, so our general rain is about, I think our long-term 12-year average is about uh, 17 inches. Um, And, uh, you know, we we have a lot of good cool season and warm season grasses up here. Um, So our rest periods on our meadows, you know, typically are going to be um, 60 to 90 days, um, averaging around 75 um, and, and they might even be longer, but where, where we've seen the most success is if we can like go into a meadow that has a lot of reeds, canary grass, and we can graze it down to carpet in early May, early to mid May, when those cool seasons are getting to that boot stage, um, we can graze it down and then let it rest for 14 months. Then you're seeing, a lot of native grasses come in on their own. Um, some warm season grasses, some perennials. I mean, they're, they're all, it's been highly effective to be able to do that. Um, you know, where in the past we've maybe grazed a pasture three times in a season. Um, and, you know, you keep hitting that cool season, but then, but then those warm seasons start coming up. And, and so, you know, that reeds canary grass, it's, it's a product of, um, you know, of course it was introduced um, to get more tonnage, but that tonnage isn't necessarily high quality. And so, but, but they've, people have hated and hated and hated over the years. And, and you do the same thing year after year, you go in there and you cut that um, down right when those warm season grasses are in their most critical stage. Um, They're in that boot stage and, and you're cutting that same pasture down and cutting those, um, warm season, the cool seasons are already mature. They they've done their thing. They're they're lignified. They're going dormant, um, and and the warm seasons are most vulnerable. And so, you know, paying that meadow the same time year after year is detrimental. Um, and, and so, you know, what what our goal is, you know, um, that first we were trying to kill reeds canary grass. <laughs> um, and so as we've spent more time with Alan Williams and understanding ag, um, we've understood that our job is to create more life. And so instead of trying to kill reeds canary grass, we're trying to um, make opportunities for more diversity. And, and we've really seen that happening. And um, the soil health of these meadows that have been regeneratively grazed um, for a while now, uh, we're increasing in soil organic matter and soil carbon. We actually had a study done on soil carbon differences between meadows that were grazed intensively and ones that weren't. And there was a good bit of difference in the amount of carbon in the regenerative grazed ones. 
can can you share those numbers like or even like a percent increase uh you know i don't have that off the top of my head i, I apologize about that i i would share it if i had it i just don't okay uh was it significant yeah. or yeah i mean i think it was still um you know single digits but it was significant i mean i think anything you know i mean uh, above even a three to five percent increase is huge with yeah, that uh, is huge. organic matter. Huge. But, yeah. And I, I don't know what the soil carbon difference was, but the organic matter was definitely, I think it was um, above 3% if, I, if my memory serves me right. Well, there's always a correlation between soil organic matter and water holding capacity and soil carbon, you know, and, and they For all sure. kind of track with each other, you know, so I suppose you could always, you know, it's a reasonable inference that, you know, if those other metrics are going up, that your actual carbon storage is going up as well. And, you know, it's, it's going to be probably, it's going to be a few weeks before we release this. We're going to put some uh, carbon episodes in front of this one that we've just, just wrapped up doing. So we're kind of like all wrapped up in soil carbon. But Uh, also like reminders, you're in a pretty brittle environment, right? Yeah, so, um, and, and we're talking more on the meadows on that. Right. So the meadows aren't as brittle. Um, okay. You know, they, they are pretty resilient. Our uplands are really a challenge, and we're yeah. still you know, working on figuring that out. But, you know, the, the biggest challenge is actually the temp fencing in the uplands. It's really, really hard um, to keep those animals behind. You know, that's the funny thing, right? You know, we get on these meadows and we got them tight. You think that, you know, with bison, that would be the biggest problem. Oh, really good. But it's yeah. actually in the uplands where where they don't stay behind those fences very well. So we're still trying to figure that out. But really our goal right now is there's, there's a spot between the meadow and the upland. There's kind of a bench there that is a little more productive. Um, and so we're trying to find places that, that we can – get those animals on those benches that has, you know, good drinking water. Um, and we can start working on some of those and trying to push out our biology, you know, further out. And, and then anytime that we can. Um, so we're doing a couple of things. One, we're trying, you know, we're still trying with the temp fence and the uplands where we can try to get them down into smaller paddocks and, and get, you know, even if we can get 10,000 pounds per acre, you know, on there, it's going to be better than it was. Um, but the other thing that we're doing, especially with our main herd, is that we're we're using some herding techniques, and we're herding those animals into different places of the pasture, you know, for a couple days here, a couple days here, and a couple days here in these big upland pastures, and and we're seeing some good results with that. And so, I mean, it's still too early to tell, you know, what that looks like, but you know, it's still a training period as well. Those animals aren't used to doing that. They're used to going to their favorite spots in that pasture and being there for 10 days, you know, so, you know, you still have to keep bringing them back and bringing them back. But, you know, we have really gotten to where we're trying to move those animals um, every three days, three to five days, you know, in those uplands. So, um, you know, just keeping them for, you know, two to three days in in different parts of that um, pasture. Um, and, And it means being out there with them more, but, um, it also means you're not putting up temp fence, you know, um, and, you know, sometimes a temp fence is the right answer and sometimes hurting them is the right answer. It's just another tool in the toolbox. Okay. So you, you're talking about hurting bison and, uh, you know, I, I'm good friends with Bob Kenford. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm really curious to, to stay in touch with you. And I know we will and see how this hurting, hurting experiment 
works out and and what you guys learn from it stockmanship wise and how the bison respond because you know some of the things that I've heard from from the hoys are are just incredible and Justin and Ricky Kremers are are it's not anecdotal anymore I mean there's definitely something to you know, trying to quote reboot a, the herd instinct or reboot the natural grazing instinct of these animals. There, there's definitely right. something to that. Yeah, and the one thing that has been really effective for Dusty um, on on my crew is doing doing his moves in the evening. You know, waiting until the evening, doing the moves, and then settling those animals there in the evening has been a huge game changer for that. You know, and I mean, it takes the right person to be able to do that, and you know. You know, you go back to, you know, hiring the right people and, and letting, you know, we talk about it a lot that ranching is a lifestyle, but I don't think most people understand what that means. Um, and, and especially if a person's come from an eight to five job, they are, you know, it, it's harder for them to adapt to ranching as a lifestyle, but sometimes five or six o'clock at night is when it's right for those animals. And, and you have to be able to, be on their clock and not, not on a, you know, certain schedule. And so, you know, I think that's what, you know, and, and as a manager or a boss or an owner, you have to be, um, you have to be trusting, you have to hire the right people that you can trust that if you see them at their house at one or two o'clock in the afternoon, that you know that they're getting their job done and they're doing it right. And that they are living that lifestyle um, that they're, working when they need to work and they're getting the job done and they're putting in the necessary time. Might get up at five o'clock in the morning and go check pastures, then come back, take a siesta, record a podcast, yeah. yep. go fishing and then go move, go move bison in the evening. Yeah. And, and, and it's really hard for a lot of bosses to be okay with that. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a music cultural change. Like I see that too. It's like, if you're going to expect them to do, all these hours, give them the day, middle of the day when there's downtime off. Um, I agree with that. Uh, and if, if, if whenever possible, let them create their own schedule. Yes. Um, and, They'll get more done when really, they create their own schedule, right? Yeah, that can be really cool for a family situation. You know, yes. maybe, maybe they take their kids to school, give their wife a break for a while. Um, you know, I mean, just, you know, get leave that open. You know, there's always those times where you're working animals where you all need to be there at a certain times. Absolutely. But, if you don't, then let them do do their schedule. That's that's pretty good advice. So I kind of looking at the clock here, and we're running a little bit long. Uh, have we left anything on the table that you want to get off your chest, Chris? No, I, I think you asked, asked some really good questions, and we covered some really good things. Uh, you know, I'll just say that with uh, regenerative. I mean, we're still pretty new. I mean, we've been doing regenerative agriculture for a long time, but, you know, really working hard at applying these principles of adaptive grazing. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting better at it, and we're doing more of it now than we ever have, but we're still still learning. Um, and so, you know, um, it's really fun to be able to learn, um, you know, more about the animals in these situations and then see the responses of, of the land as well. And, um, so five years down the road, we'll probably have a lot, um, cooler story to tell right. at that point. I hope we're here to tell the stories. Yep. <laughs> oh, we will be <laughs> one way or the other. 
Oh, CK, do you have anything? No, I I just I feel like I learned so much more about bison that I I mean I guess I didn't know anything. So it just it was interesting to to have this episode and cover this because I feel like I'm going to go tell my husband all this stuff now. <laughs> well, Chris, I really appreciate you being here, and and I'll add one last thing. Um, you know, I talked about our bison being bison and our philosophy, and it's just so you know my journey. I, I talked about my journey pretty. Um, uh, pretty black and white, if you will, more of jobs and stuff. But my um, my paradigm journey, I started out pretty hardcore buckaroo, um, you know, production ag, you know, um, really strong background that way. And over the years, I've slowly changed my paradigm to be a lot more conservation oriented and, and then coming into regenerative agriculture, which growing up in eastern Washington state, I mean, that is the furthest thing from what they're doing there. You know, I mean, it's all fertilizer spray, you know, all that stuff. Um, and, and you can see what it does to, to the land. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's been a hard shift for me to shift that paradigm, but I have. And, and I really love the direction that we're at. But, you know, from a livestock background, you know, um, pr- production livestock, it, you know, it's, it's a huge piece of who I was. And, you know, I was pretty hardcore that way. And so, you know, we've, I've gotten into a spot where, you know, we're a lot more hands off. We're letting the animals be animals and actually take care of us instead of us taking care of them. And, um, and so our bison philosophy is really one that we want those animals to go out and be their best with the nature, with, with what nature intended for them. And so, you know, providing very minimal inputs um, to them and they go out and, and they have to get bread on what nature provides. So mother nature is actually our coal factor. If they come in open, they're not able to meet mother nature's needs, then they go down the road. And, and so we also are able to do that with our reproductive efficiency by only keeping those animals that are bred. And so it takes a lot more work up front. It takes a lot more animals up front because mother nature is going to take quite a few of those out by the time they have their second calf. Um, those animals that have the second calf, they're going to be the ones that are going to stay in the herd long-term. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, whether it's worms or, or, you know, parasites or any of those other things, including, you know, feed resources and, um, being able to recover, Mother Nature takes care of those for us, and, and those animals cull themselves out. There's so, anyway, that's been a lot of fun to make that journey for me, and I really enjoy where I'm at in that philosophy. And I think it's kind of important to note that you know when you are making big changes, going from I'm going to say it a welfare herd to <laughs> to a herd that that's not reliant on a lot of inputs and a lot of supplements. You know, when you pull those inputs and supplements away from your cows, you're going to have fallout and it might, it might be a lot. And, but you got to keep in mind, you got to keep in mind though, the end goal, like, you know, there's long-term benefit to this short-term pain. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and your profitability is going to go way up. I mean, it might not be there for a couple of years because of your fallout, but um, long-term. And I mean, I, I think a lot of people worry about that fallout, but 
man, there's a lot of things you can do with those fallout animals that can add value to them. And there's going to be some, some other person out there that wants them, you know, they're like, Hey, they'll fit my program just fine. I'll baby them, you know, no, no problem. Um, And that's, that's just great. So it's not usually as bad as it seems on paper. I think that's a great spot to end. Chris, thanks for joining us today, all the way from the Sand Hills of Nebraska. We sure appreciate you. Appreciate you all. It was good to meet you, CK. It was good to meet you as well. Goodbye, everybody, and have a great week.